Today's episode is sponsored by Root, Restoring Our Own Through Transformation. Root is a collective of concerned Black families, community members, advocates, and interdisciplinary professionals dedicated to decreasing Black maternal and infant mortality in Ohio. Root's mission is to comprehensively restore our collective well-being through collaboration, resource allocation, research, and re-empowerment in order to meet the needs of Black parents and families. If you and your family are planning, pregnant, or in your postpartum period, please reach out to Root at www.rootrj.org. Financial assistance is available. You can also connect with Root at 614-398-1766 or email them at general-info at rootrj.org. Welcome to Birth Stories in Color, a podcast creating community for people of color to share and learn from birth stories of all types. We're your hosts, Laurel Gurrier and Danielle Jackson. Today's episode features Arielle Pitts-Thomas sharing her journey of surrender. Having had a chemical pregnancy in the past, a hypermesis diagnosis, and a birth with many shifts, she had to learn to trust that her body was more than capable for it all. We are grateful to hear her truth today. Hello, Arielle. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Excited to have you. We are. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your family? I can. Um, My name is Arielle. I'm born and raised from Columbus, Ohio. Um, I tell people I'm a marketing strategist by day and a dancing creative at night, but I don't think I take off either hat at any point of, (laughs) of the day. Um, And with my family, I'm married to the love of my life, Stefan, and we have a daughter who is now 14 months, and her name is Nyla, and she's our first. Can you tell us a little bit about your pregnancy with Nyla? I can. My pregnancy, um, it was really interesting when I found out I was pregnant versus when I had symptoms of being pregnant were different times. Um, We were traveling and this is pre-pandemic, but uh, late 2019 going into 2020. And Stefan actually got a stomach bug while we were traveling. And so he was sick for maybe 24 hours. And then a day or so later, I, I felt sick. Like I started feeling really nauseated and I was vomiting and we're still traveling. Um, and I'm just like, oh, I must have caught, you know, what you had, but it just never, the nausea of it, the vomiting, like it just never went away. And so when we got home, I started to notice things that I normally would have, like I'm a habitual coffee drinker and I just didn't want because I still had this nauseous feeling. And, you know, he's like, you're probably pregnant. And I I was in complete denial. You know, I think I was at that phase of, associating every pregnant symptom with a PMS symptom. So I'm like, no, starting a PMS, you know, this is just what's happening. And um, slowly started to realize kind of how late I was and um, but still in denial, took a pregnancy test and like fly by night, took a pregnancy test and was like, I got to go run and teach a dance class. And the test was positive, but I was like, I don't trust these lines. So, you know, I'm going to go teach this class and um, pick up a test with words that can, you know, very clearly express to me that what I know, which is that I'm not pregnant. And um, 
after several tests, obviously was uh, confirmed that I was pregnant. But from that moment, um, from traveling, I never really stopped feeling nauseous and and vomiting. And so it kind of started to to shape what that what pregnancy started to feel like for me um, really early on. Um, by that point, I was maybe five or four or five weeks, um, and I'd uh, you know, had some nervousness around it. I'd had a chemical pregnancy before. And so um, because of that, I think uh, every day I was just nervous, nervous of, you know, am I going to wake up? And it's like every time I would wipe, I would be looking like, is there blood? Or um, even though I had like really bad morning sickness, I associated it with the baby's health. So I felt like everything I read said, if you have morning sickness, then typically your baby is fine. So while I hated having it, I thought as long as I have this, then I know my baby is okay. So I had I had a lot of fear going into it, um, and then dealing with the morning sickness. Early in my pregnancy, I did get a, get the flu, and again, this was um, pre pandemic, but starting off in the pandemic. Um, so I ultimately reached out to um, who would end up being my doula, Monique, because I didn't have anyone um, that knew I was pregnant and my um, provider was unresponsive. So I, I didn't know what to do with being sick. And that kind of started my journey of having um, having that doula support, even though it was informal at that time, um, you know, really reaching out to find out what can I do? What, what shouldn't I do? How can I make sure I'm healthy? Um, and at that point, Monique shared with me that, you know, it was never too early to to get a doula. And I think I, I learned that along the journey that um, you can engage a doula really even before um, getting pregnant. And, um, you know, she really was by my side from that point moving forward and got me connected into um, the the doula network that she was with. And um, I had a chance to to talk to Danny. Danny, uh, you know, I, I remember that conversation with you like so specifically because I was in the throes of morning sickness and my um, morning sickness had gotten to the point where I was driving to work and I had a doggy bag in my car because I would be throwing up on the drive. And then I would arrive and be throwing up in the garage and finding bathrooms, you know, because you don't really want to you don't want to throw up, but you definitely don't want to throw up and, and sound like that at work. Um, but, you know, Danny just giving me guidance on, you know, you need to make some eating changes. You know, you have to change. You, I was eating crackers and ginger ale because that's what you read, you know, to eat crackers and drink ginger ale. But Danny's like, so sugar and carbs that turn into sugar. And <laughs> I'm like, that's, that's pretty accurate when you put it that way. And so, um, I think that piece of of the morning sickness really started out the pregnancy, but also very early on needing to address and disassociate that with the health of of the baby um, throughout the pregnancy. And that that was a, a theme, I think, of my pregnancy was constantly needing to name the fears that I had and um, really address them head on and and really address like the why behind them. Um, ultimately, throughout my pregnancy, I I had HG. Um, so I uh, ended up with morning sickness or or vomiting for the first six months 
of my pregnancy. And that that became pretty discouraging, I think, um, after that three month mark, you know, I think I expected it for the first trimester, but I'd read that, you know, the second trimester is just this blissful state and got to that, that fourth month and was at that point vomiting four or five times a day. And I mean, it was just taking so, so much out of me. Um, and then on top of that, that's when the pandemic really started. Um, so it was just this period of feeling really, you know, isolated, not really knowing what to expect, um, but also really exhausted um, from just that morning sickness and it not subsiding. Um, And so when I talk about my pregnancy and even just the birth, the word that I use to describe it is surrender. Um, Because I just think from that moment of traveling, I had to surrender my body. I had to surrender just my thoughts and the framework of thoughts that I had around what pregnancy would look like and what it ultimately looked like in the pandemic. Um, and then even with the HG, um, you know, it felt like nothing worked. And then finally, my provider gave me something that did work, but it was a sample. And when I went to get the sample, because it, it actually worked, it was a lot of money and a lot more money than what I felt like it was worth knowing that my my symptoms didn't have an end in sight. And so um, I just kind of powered through that piece of it. Um, the other piece with my pregnancy was I did change medical providers. So I shared earlier that when I'd gotten sick, my medical provider was unresponsive and I um, that kind of set the tone for a lot of things with the pregnancy and just with the expectations from them. Um, When we had our first visit, which I think is like the eight or nine week mark um, where they kind of verify um, the heartbeat and all of that. uh, My husband, uh, Stefan, he brought up to the provider like, Hey, this is a concern for us. You weren't, your office wasn't responsive. We just want to make sure that's not normal practice. And um, the interaction with the provider was just really tense. And um, I remember thinking like, I have been with this this provider for years, but I also, this is his first experience and I don't want this to feel negative, um, but ultimately made the decision um, to, to switch providers because I couldn't risk that level of inconsistency, especially in the pandemic and especially as visits were transitioning to just me alone. Um, I couldn't, you know, go into a visit wondering what mood is my provider going to be in? Are they going to respond to my needs when I need them? Um, It ended up being a really scary transition, but such a great decision. Um, The provider I ended up with was absolutely perfect for our family and for ultimately our birth. Um, And then probably the last like really memorable piece of of pregnancy for me. I mentioned just having to deal head on with a lot of fear. And I had an affirmation, I would say every day, you know, I would affirm that, you know, I have this healthy growing baby. And every day I would just affirm that in so many ways. And at the same time, like I mentioned, every time I went to the restroom, I was checking for blood. Every time um, I didn't have any nausea or morning sickness, I was worried And my doula said, you know, you can't operate in both. You either have to operate 
with this affirmation and really have faith that what you're affirming is true or you can choose to operate in in the fear but you can't you can't keep you know being in both spaces and that really opened my eyes um to you know I was doing the exercise of affirming but I don't think I was until that point truly exercising the faith of affirmation and truly doing the work of affirmation and and facing the fears and that that continued um to, to ring true throughout the pregnancy, but it, it was a tough pregnancy. It's, um, you know, it was nothing like I'd imagined it would be. Um, but you know, it was tough within reason. I'm, you know, it was, it was tough because of just being sick and lacking energy. And it was tough because of, of the pandemic and feeling that, that isolation from it for sure. I want to clarify just a few things for yeah. our audience. Um, I have a personal relationship with Ariel, and so does Monique. And outside of being root doulas at the time, and um, so she told Monique she was pregnant. <laughs> Monique told me she was pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> then we, uh, of course, referred her to Root for services and support, and then I did Ariel's intake. So the difference, um, sometimes some intakes are seriously just like, you know, this is my script and these are the things that you have to say. Um, what's important when you're dealing with birth work is that the person that's pregnant is dealing with those things they're talking about right now. And if you have the knowledge to share in that moment, you don't have to wait for them to be assigned to someone or, you know, the connection or to have that first meeting. She was struggling, right? Um, and, and it wasn't just because I had a personal relationship, but I was said the same thing to her on an off call, um, just regular conversation. And I think that's important to note that it's the person is pregnant right now. They're dealing with these things right now. And sometimes, um, in birth work and because it is, you know, your intellectual property, it's your, your job and it's your thing you do. Why are we holding knowledge, right? Like, don't hold the knowledge. Don't gatekeep knowledge from people. Um, your support and your services are valuable um, further down the line. If you know something right in that moment to share with someone, it's important to go ahead and do that. It doesn't cost you anything. You haven't lost anything. If nothing else, you've gained more confidence um, from the person that you're working with. Um, and I do, I do recall just those feelings, the same thing that you're sharing, like about you know, every time you wiped, it was just like, is this, is this real? And really being able to plant your feet into the pregnancy, um, even when your body was clearly very pregnant and going through all the emotions that went with that, like the emotional part of it as well. And I think of um, like how you and your partner both managed that having had experience um, a loss, an early loss like that, and then going into the pregnancy. How was that for you guys in your interactions and really both um, putting your feet into the pregnancy? Um, I, you know, I, I can't speak for, you know, emotionally how it, it was for Stefan. I can say for me, um, when I experienced the chemical pregnancy for people who may not know, sometimes with that kind of pregnancy loss, you don't know that you're pregnant. And so um, it was super early. And so I think um, once I got past kind of the early weeks, you, I still didn't understand really why I'd 
had a chemical pregnancy or why I'd miscarried. And, and so you just don't, I just didn't trust my body. Um, and that was thematic. And we'll talk about that even in my birth experience. It's just this consistent distrust of, of, or it was this consistent distrust of my body and um, its ability to do what what it needed to do to protect the baby. And, and so um, it, I think it took that daily mental work to get over that hump. Um, and, and saying it out loud, I, I think there was so much in just saying that to you and and saying that to Monique, because I hadn't shared that. I mean, at at the point that I was interacting with you both, no one knew I was pregnant, literally just Stefan and I. And, um, but I think just saying out loud, you know, that I was operating in that fear, it, it gave space to, to receive, you know, the guidance of like, okay, here's a different way to think about what you're experiencing. And here's a way to, to shift your thoughts around that. So I think that was really helpful um, for me too, to just have that space and, and a trusted space to be able to share, you know, that, that I was feeling that way, especially so early on. Um, I think as I got farther along, um, and again, I think it was a part of just doing more of that mental work and really walking in the affirmations that I was saying, I felt less concerned um, because more time had passed. And um, I think I, I just over time was was able to feel less concerned um, about loss. One thing that I did have to make an effort um, to stop doing was reading discussion boards. Um, and another reason why having someone to call that was a trusted safe space was so important. You know, the other resource is at my fingertips and it's on my phone is the internet. And um, when no one knows that you're pregnant, you know, those discussion boards and other people who are also, you know, seven weeks and eight weeks, you just start reading, you know, am I experiencing what these other people are experiencing? And I would go down a rabbit hole with those things. I remember one time reading a discussion board and it was someone who was as far as along as I was and they went to their doctor's appointment and there was no heartbeat. And I caught Stefan bawling, bawling, like sobbing. And he's like, I don't think this is healthy for, <laughs> for you to, to read. And at that point, he and Monique are like, you got to cut, you got to cut that out. Like you can't, I was getting so attached to other people's experiences so early on um, that it just fed the fear of, of for me, which was like that ultimate fear at that time of loss. And so I think cutting out that and just knowing that for me, that wasn't the right, um, the right source of information um, just because of, of my, I feel like I'm an empath when I read that kind of stuff. And um, it was just feeding my fear. I think that also helps me get my footing, just drowning out the noise of that. You've already gone like really deep into the prep work that you were doing um, for this birth, but were there other things that your doulas were assisting you with or having you think about to really prepare for, for birth for both you and Stefan? Yeah. Um, I think, well, one of the best things that Monique did was really 
take us slowly through what to expect um, when that time came. Um, it didn't feel like we jumped right in um, to, okay, this is what birth is going to look like. What questions do you have? It it really was like, I'm going to share with you over time <laughs> what this will look like. And, um, you know, it just felt really well, well paced. I had a lot of fear around birth by nature. I'm a pretty planful person. I like to know what I expect. I'm pretty risk averse. And so the idea of birth itself is um, pretty anxiety inducing (laughs) for me. Um, And so I had a ton of just questions about birth and apprehensions about, you know, what it would feel like. Um, I remember one day I just shot Monique this like stream of text messages of like, what if this? And um, I mean, it was everything from, you know, what if I can't handle the pain to, you know, what if I die, you know, when this, when I give birth, it was just like this litany of questions at like 8 a.m. <laughs> like I just woke up, I was like, I got to get this out. And um, I ultimately ended up writing each of those fears down. And for every fear, I wrote an affirmation. And I put those affirmations on post-its and put them on the back of my bathroom door in the bathroom because it was the place I was going 60,000 times a day. So it was like, this is where I know I will see it every day, every night, in the middle of the night. Um, And it was, again, just another place where I had to surrender the fact that I'm not going to know until I know. And I just have to trust that. Um, Another part of preparing for birth, again, we were in a pandemic, so there was the unknown of what my actual hospital birth would look like from a support perspective. At the time, or just throughout my pregnancy, doulas were banned from, um, well, I don't want to say banned from the hospital. You could have one person accompany you, and that one person could be your partner. It could be your doula. It could be whomever you wanted, but it could only be one physical person. And so um, there was just a lot of mental preparation, a lot of conversations Stefan and I had around, do we send Monique? I mean, because we didn't know what we were walking into. And it was just like, would would we be better served not having my partner at at the birth? Um, And I, I was emailing the hospital. I was, I was like, you guys need to release this and here are the reasons why. I mean, I was very much an advocate for a doula should not count as that visiting person. And um, I gave birth on September 15th, but on September 1st, the hospital that I gave birth at um, allowed doulas um, and, and a visitor to come with you. But there was some mental preparation there with just knowing you know, my mom wouldn't be there. And again, just envisioning it being different than what um, it actually was. I did uh, prepare just from a a physical perspective. I I mentioned just having challenges um, with, you know, the hyperemesis, but um, my iron was really, really low through my, during my pregnancy. So just making some conscious changes with what I was eating. Um, I didn't want to take the iron supplements that were prescribed because I had terrible hemorrhoids. Oh my God, they were so bad. So I was I was thinking, okay, I'm going to take this iron supplement. It's going to make me constipated. I got these hemorrhoids. Like that is just a disaster. <laughs> like I cannot 
do that. So I made a deal with the doctor. I said, let me naturally try to deal with this, you know, iron deficiency. And if after you do my blood work again, it's still like really deficient or, or concerningly low, I will take the supplements, but let me try this route. And, and my doctor was amazing. He was a huge proponent of doulas, a huge proponent of birth plans and just so supportive and affirming um, just, you know, so he's like, okay, like let's, let's go this route. Um, so definitely taking, um, you know, natural supplements, uh, taking some blackstrap molasses, which I still take, <laughs> um, you know, to help with just even my energy levels, um, eating lots of dates, <laughs> you know, and just trying to prepare my body from a nutrient perspective um, to give birth. And then, you know, having a birth plan. Um, what I'll say about that is I prepared for a vaginal birth. Um, I knew everything there was to know about a vaginal birth. And what I realized post-birth was I deeply researched the things that I wanted for my birth experience and for my um, ultimately like my postpartum experience. So for example, I deeply researched a vaginal birth, but I didn't, I don't even think I read anything about a surgical birth. I deeply researched, you know, natural ways to induce, but I didn't read anything about other, the the other induction methods. Um, I read everything about breastfeeding. I read nothing about formula. Like I only researched the things that I wanted, um, which, you know, I think became a challenge for me when things didn't pan out the way that I'd planned or, or researched. Um, but I, I did do the birth plan. Um, and I had very clear things I didn't want, but then everything else I was just like, I mean, ultimately I don't want to die and I want a healthy baby. Like at the end of it, that's the goal. Um, but the things I said I didn't want was I didn't want Pitocin. Um, and I, the, the reason behind that, when I look in hindsight, was because everyone I knew that had a birth um, that was induced from Pitocin had a negative association with their birth story. Um, so whether it was a tear or just everyone that I talked to that had Pitocin, they just didn't reflect positively on their birth. Um, so I think I associated that with the Pitocin. So I said, no Pitocin. Um I, I was open to an epidural if I asked for it. And so I felt like I wanted to go as long as I could without an epidural. And then, you know, I wanted to do everything I could to have a vaginal pregnancy. I mean, a vaginal um, delivery. So those were the main things um, that I did. The other piece, in addition to the affirmations, was changing my language around contractions. Um so, you know, referring to the contractions as waves, again, just another one of those like mental shifts that I needed to make um, so that I wouldn't like focus so much on the pain that I didn't even understand with a contraction would be. Um, so a lot of just shift in my mental, a lot of shift in, in my language and in my diet. Let's talk about your actual birth experience. Yes. How did it start? Yeah. Um, so 
again, I mentioned um, I gave birth on September 15th, but my birth experience started on September 13th. Um, I went into labor around midnight, 1 a.m. Um, you know, like I shared, Monique had let me know what to expect when my body went into labor. So um, I can't recall the name of the, of the fluid, but there was like a pink fluid that came out. I went to the restroom, but I remember Monique saying like, this is something that that happened. So I wasn't alarmed, but I knew immediately I needed to just let her know. Um, and I, this was the middle of the night. So I, I went to the bedroom to tell Stefan, like, um, I think something's starting and my water um, broke. And so I, I immediately was like, okay, so for real, something's, something's happening. Um, we contacted um, my mom, we contacted his mom and we contacted um, Monique immediately just to say, this is what's happened. We think it's getting started. From that point, I went back to sleep because <laughs> I'm like, I don't, I don't know. And I, I kind of, I don't know if I'm ready for real. So let me just, let me just go, let me just get some rest. You know, sleep is like my little retreat. Um, but Stefan, he was, he was working feverishly. He had to pack his hospital bag. He had to install the car seat. You know, Monique got here at 3 a.m. My mom was here. I mean, the house was popping, but me, I, I was asleep because I'm just like, I mean, I think mentally I was just like, oh, shit, like this is about to happen. And let me just let, you know, let it let it go. Um, and plus, you know, I wasn't feeling heavy waves. I mean, this was super early. So, um, you know, Monique let me know she was here. Um, and that next morning we started to do some things to just help it naturally progressed. Um, we definitely monitored my temperature, monitored the baby's heart rate, um, and monitored the amount of fluid that was coming out of my body because my even though my water had broke broken, it wasn't like a, a full gush. I was kind of more so having like more of a small leak. So um but it was something that Monique, you know, monitored just to make sure that there was just still that support um, there. But I largely labored at home. Um, you know, we went on walks, did a lot of different little uh, things on medicine balls, just things to just try to open my body up. Um, but when we contacted my doctor, again, he, he was super supportive of my plan and of a doula. And, you know, mid-pandemic especially, it was like, I don't want to go to the hospital until I absolutely have to go to the hospital, you know, because at that point, that's when my mom wouldn't be with me any longer. That's when we couldn't be in and out. And so it just had too many restrictions. Um, so laboring at home, it was just my happy place. Um, it was, I mean, it just felt so comfortable. And even as those waves came and as they came heavier, for some reason, they just still felt easy to to work through at home, you know, just in my own environment, um, you know, was able to just take a shower and um, just I feel like mentally prepare myself for for what was happening. But um, laboring at home was just it was just super peaceful for me. And I remember even, um, you know, Monique 
would take me through different exercises. And I think she could sense that I was just like holding all this emotion and anticipation in my body. And she's like, you can let that out. And I just remember just crying and like, just, I think coming to terms with like, this is really happening and, and, you know, realizing, um, the, the shift that was about to take place. Um, but I loved laboring at home. We labored at home for, man, 20, a little over 24 hours. Um, and finally, you know, in monitoring the the waves, they started to come more frequently. Um, and talking to my doctor, we made the decision to go to the hospital on September 14th in the morning. Um, went to the hospital. Um, and I think immediately I just felt a difference in the environment. You know, it's just not home. Um, and so from that point, just immediately felt, felt that difference. But upon arriving at the hospital, um, they wanted to do a cervical check, which, you know, I, I think it's pretty common to see how far along I, I was. But because my water had broke, they let me know that they could not use any lubrication to do the cervical check um, because they needed to, to test the fluids or, you know, whatever. Um, so they proceeded to do that cervical check and it was horrid. I mean, I screamed like I was screaming, crying. It was just the most painful thing that I had felt. Um, I mean, I, it was horrible. And I remember looking at Stefan and there were tears in his eyes um, because I don't think he had ever heard me in that kind of pain or in especially never seen someone inflict that kind of pain um, on me. And so they did the cervical check. It was, it was terrible. Um, but they, you know, verify that my water broke, which I knew. Um, and they let me know that I was one centimeter and 70% of face. And I think that point just knocked the wind out of me. I was just like, it's been over 24 hours and I was one centimeter. And that was just, oh my goodness. Like it just felt like no progress, like no progress. So we um, stayed and because I don't think they were going to let me leave knowing that my water had broken. And, um, so we got into a room and I just wanted to go to sleep. I was physically tired, but I think even more so just emotionally tired and discouraged. Um, so I'm like, I'm going to sleep through this thing. You know, I, I'm, I'm tired. And, <laughs> and Monique is like, you know, let's bounce on this ball. You know, she's just encouraging me to, um, do everything I can to help keep things moving. And I just was, I was out of it. And I think she could sense that discouragement. And at one point she's like, I need you to verbally say, I can do this. And I, I couldn't say it. I could not form the words. I didn't believe those words um, because my body was just proving otherwise. And it was just another place where I feel like that distrust in my body was, was taking root. Um, and ultimately, you know, I mustered those words out, but, you know, I just was like, I'm not making progress. So after um, several hours, you know, of, of laboring again in the hospital, they are like, we need to do something to induce. And so they wanted me to um, take Pitocin, 
which, you know, again, my birth plan was pretty lax, but there was one thing I said I didn't want (laughs) on the birth plan. And so here I was, um, I feel like with the decision of, you know, do you take the Pitocin or, or do you just wait this thing out? And I, I felt like my body was just showing me that it wasn't opening and I needed to, to do something different. Um, so I did make the decision to continue unmedicated, um, but to, uh, use Pitocin to help induce. Um, again, I, I think, I was just at that point, I felt really discouraged, but I did feel peace with that decision. Um, You know, I felt like it was a decision that me, Stefan and Monique talked through. And, you know, I felt like I owned that decision and, and came to it. And, you know, when I think about the why I didn't want Pitocin, you know, I think it was attaching to other people's birth experiences versus my own. And so was on the Pitocin um, for a while. And the doctor says, or the nurse, I need to do another cervical check. And I'm dreading this because I'm just like, the last cervical check, almost, I was about to just go on and go home and figure this thing out on my own. Like, I was like, not for it. But they're like, that's the only way we can see how you're progressing. So they do the cervical check. It was horrid again. It was just something about the cervical checks that were, I mean, I can't even put into words how terrible my experience with them were. And part of it, I mean, I never had cervical checks in my doctor visits. um, But for the one in particular, I mean, I was just screaming in so much pain that Stefan put his body over my body and told them to get off of me. Like, do not touch her. And so it was just a really bad experience. So they leave from doing those cervical checks or that particular one. But when they come back, it's multiple nurse and uh, it's multiple staff. Um, So it's the nurse that we've been dealing with, some other nurse and a doctor And they are like surrounding me. I'm in the bed um, and they proceed to tell me about how the baby's in distress. Um, You know, they're like the heart rate, the way we've been looking at it and it's dipped. And, you know, I'm like, yeah, because that cervical check, it just stressed us all out, you know, but they just were like, you need to you know, we need to proceed with a C-section, right? And it, at the time, you know, I'm just absorbing this information and I, you know, I trust the the doctor is telling me what I need to know. And so I'm just listening, but I also don't know that I fully trust that the baby's in distress. Um, and, you know, Stefan is asking questions. Monique is listening and Stefan is like, I've been watching this heart rate because I was also on continuous monitoring. So we were able to see the heart rate. We knew what the baseline of, uh, of what her baseline heart rate was. And we're like, she's not really off of the baseline. Like there's <laughs> there's really no no need to to rush into this. And their energy was rushed energy. It was just anxious energy. It just didn't feel like the right move. And so finally, Stefan said, 
we want to talk this through with our doctor. And um, by this point, it was, I don't know, maybe 1, 2 a.m. And the doctor, my doctor came to the hospital and they had already shared with him that my baby was in distress and we needed to do a surgical birth. So when he walked in, he's like, so we're doing a C-section. You know, <laughs> he's like, you know, already got this story. And Stefan is like, no, like, this is what, you know, we've been observing with the heart rate. This is what happened when the cervical check took place. But the baseline, you know, and the doctor came over and examined the heart rate and he agreed. And he was like, yeah, I don't see any reason to rush this. Um, he, you know, he's like, unless you want to, you're, you know, let's just, you know, keep progressing how you have been. He did say, though, you know, at some point I am going to have to do another cervical check. Um, and so, you know, I kept that in mind. And, you know, I think we increased the the Pitocin. I did agree to do that. Um, and I said, you know, get those people on out of here. And I think Monique and Stefan said, don't let that other doctor come back and <laughs> come back in and say anything to her. And we progressed um, over time. The, the doctor came and checked back in and he did want to do another cervical check, which I understood, but I was kind of horrified <laughs> at that point of doing. And so his recommendation was maybe you should get an epidural so that we can, you know, actually do the cervical check and it doesn't put your body in such physical distress. And he mentioned that in doing um, in doing that, there was something he could I don't know if it was put in my body or he could do that could monitor the uh, like the intensity of the waves as well so that he, you know, could monitor that. Um, and so I that point kind of broke me a little bit because, again, here was something else that was I didn't really want. Um, for the epidural, you know, the why behind it was because I have a family history of spinal issues. And so the thought of an epidural was scary because of the risk that I associate with anything that has to do with my spine. And so I just remember saying, I got to call my mom. Like I need, I need to call my mom um, and just crying on FaceTime with my mom. And, you know, she's like praying for me and just like, you can do this. It's going to be okay. Um, but at that point, I knew I needed to get the epidural because again, like I, I wasn't progressing, but also I was on this Pitocin to progress. And so, um, made the decision to get the epidural. Um, but again, felt like I came to that decision, felt like I owned that decision. I didn't feel rushed with it. Um, and the doctor proceeded to do another cervical check when he did that one. I think I was, well, he waited a while before he did that cervical check because he wanted to just let me get more Pitocin in and get more waves. Um, during that time, the nurse would kind of come in and out, but this is probably three in the morning. Um, the nurse would come in, kind of check the heart rate. But at this point, I'm I'm asleep. You know, I got this epidural in me. I'm sleep, sleep. And um I remember at one point the nurse came in and she's like, yep, everything, you know, looks good. She came, she went out and then she came back in, but like really rushed. And she's like, the heart, the baby's in distress. And like, I think he, we might need to move forward with the surgical birth. The doctor really wants you to have a surgical birth. And I'm like, what is 
happening. And, you know, so again, I'm being faced with these decisions of like, this baby's in distress. And, you know, at this point, Stefan and Monique intervene and they're just like, you're putting decisions in front of her. She's half in, half out, you know, because I'm, I'm drugged up at this point and tired and you're not being clear of what's happening because in one moment you're saying the baby's fine. The next moment you're rushing in here and saying things are not okay. And the lines of communication are muddied. They're not clear. And, you know, I mean, they just really begin to advocate on my behalf for clear communication, for clear understanding of what the situation was. And then ultimately any decisions would be made by me and in partnership with my doctor and not the on-call doctor. Um, and I remember going in the bathroom with Stefan at one point and just bawling. And he's just like, you know, what's wrong? And I'm like, my body is failing me. Like that was just the the feeling I had was like at every turn, it felt like my body was failing. And I'm just like, fuck it, let's just get this, let's just get the C-section. Like, you know, and he's like, we're not going to make that decision that way. If if you want a C-section, we'll have one, but it's not going to be because you are feeling pressured from other people. It's not going to be because you're, you know, just giving up. Like it, it's got to be because it's what you have made peace with, with, but we're not going to come to the decision that way. Um, so, you know, ultimately I was like, let's just see where I am when the doctor checks on me, fell back asleep. He and Monique, they let the whole entire staff know, like, don't come in here with that energy. Don't come in here with that unclear communication. You know, they were just advocating for me. At, at every turn. And when the doctor came back, he checked to see where I was and I had only progressed to about four centimeters. And so at that point, he said, we can we can keep laboring. Like, you know, what do you want to do? Um, and it was, I don't know, like 5 a.m. in the morning on Tuesday. And I went into labor on Sunday and I was, I was like, I want to meet my baby. I'm ready to meet my baby. I am at peace with how, you know, I'll meet, I'll meet my baby, but I'm, I'm tired and I'm ready. Um, and again, it was coming to a decision that I, on my birth plan, didn't want, but feeling like I came to it on my own with my own timing, um, and just so well supported um, by my doula, by Stefan, by my doctor with the information that I, I needed from them. Um, so ultimately did have an elective surgical birth. Um, and at, uh, what was great about it was there were things I still wanted to hold on to from my birth plan. So um, my music playlist, I said, I, I still want to hear, you know, my music play. And the staff was like, perfect, you know, bring like play it, like let's do it. Um, the other thing that was on my birth plan was I wanted Stefan's voice to be the first voice that the baby heard. And so I didn't want my baby coming out and it's like, where's the forceps? Where's the scalpel? You know, I just didn't want like that hospital talk. Um, and so, you know, I let everyone in the operating room know, you know, when this baby comes out. I want it to be Stefan's voice and that's it. And they were, they were a hundred percent 
cool with that. I mean, it was so it felt like I still was able to honor some things that were really important to me about the atmosphere that she came into. Um, And then lastly, was just immediate skin to skin. Um, You know, I wanted that baby on me as fast as possible. Um, And again, you know, they honored it. So at 9-11, she came out, she heard a mix of Stefan praying for her and me screaming and crying out of like (laughs) joy and and overwhelm. So she, but she heard her parents' voice is is the thing, Um, you know, it was the first thing she heard. And, you know, once they, you know, did everything they needed to do for the APGAR, I immediately looked and saw she was rooting and, and, but my arms, because of the way that they kind of had me laid on the table, my arms were numb. And so the nurse held her to my boob so that she could just be on my skin and root and, and start to suck on me. And the nurse just literally just held her on me. And it was just like such a supportive staff of the things that felt very important to me. And again, like just, coming back to surrendering, you know, I I had to surrender what I thought the plan would be. Um, But when I look back at my birth, the actual birth, it was amazing. It was just the most beautiful moment for me. Um, You know, you don't even realize that, you know, they're just cutting into you and (laughs) sewing you back up because it was just they honored so much of what they could still honor um, as a part of my plan. So, um, you know, when I look back at my birth, I don't look back at it negatively at all. Um, But I know that that's in large part due to the support I had in the room in those moments that could have been really negative moments that that could have shaped it that way. Informed collective (laughs) care. Yes. Where you were able, because ultimately birth plans, preferences shifts, right? They, they shift no matter how we go in into birth. There are going to be some things that do kind of sway away. What your hope is, what should happen is that in any of those moments, you are given all of the information you need in the most beautiful way possible to make a decision that's yours that like you said isn't rushed isn't unclear but that you're able to say okay things have changed i've got x y and z this makes sense let's go ahead and do that yeah um because it's still your experience you're still um spirit and body are in that um and that's going to stay with you after that and you just want to be able to Yeah, it's your birth, your experience, that your voice was the loudest. Yeah, and it's crazy because I'm not a shy person by nature, but I remember feeling voiceless in a sense that they were presenting all of this information. The energy was so hurried and felt so like emergent, like it was just an emergency um, situation. And I I just remember feeling like small in in the space and just feeling like overwhelmed by the decisions and the pace of the decisions. And and I'm so grateful that I had support to be my voice and to, um, to slow things down and to take ownership back of, of the room and of the energy, because I, for some reason, just 
couldn't. And I it's I it's something that I can't even describe as to why, but I mean to your point it's like being able to have someone that can give you those options in an informed and grace-filled way. It it just makes so much of a difference of how you feel you can make the decision. I think the tricky part is that, you know, no matter our personalities, when you are in birth, you're teetering two different realms, right? You're in labor land and then you're also like hovering over being fully present. Uh And so to be able to fully ask yourself to comprehend, which are like the beginning, the large beginning choices of what you want to make as a parent with trusting people to care for you, because no matter the amount of research we've done, like there are still unknowns. Uh We are still trusting people who have gone to school for this, who have seen this on many levels to be able to guide us. It's a lot to ask of a person who is not all there. (laughs) I'm birthing a whole human right now. And you asking me about this. Like what? (laughs) I'm not even here right now. Yeah. Um, so it is a it's it's a huge ask, and why yeah. it is so important, you know, to have a partner who's able to to support you um, to sometimes like you know you know we say as as doulas we're bridges, and you know if there needs to be a place where we speak up for you, that happens because uh-huh. again you're teetering two places. So having um, your doula, having Stefan to be able to be like, actually, we need to put a pause on this, and all y'all are tripping. So. Yeah. <laughs> Give her time to process what what you just came into the room with. Yeah. And in the meantime, fix your energy. (laughs) Okay. Try it again. (laughs) It made such a difference. It really did. And and ultimately, I think um, even that the nurse, you know, because Stefan had a really honest conversation with her about just the level of communication and, and the shift in energy that took place. And she was apologetic. She was, she received it. Um, at first she didn't, but then she came to it um, because it wasn't meant to be a combative thing. But I think, I hope that she walked away from that giving better care to, to others. Um, and just also, you know, I, I was even talking through this with, with Monique. I hope she also walked away feeling more confident in her own intuition because there were so many moments where she came in and felt everything was okay. And then she would go out and talk to the doctor and then she would come back and it would be a whole different energy. And so, um, but those conversations needed to be had for, for my birth and hopefully to make the birth experience for others a, a better one. I love that you said that you hope that she trusts herself more, right? There's a lot to be said in a hospital setting because numbers matter so much and that the the tape matters, like what's being recorded, everything matters and there's liabilities in that, right? And sometimes they get caught up in what's the number, like cervical checks, right? Yeah. They don't mean as much as people like to think they mean, right? Um, when you came in at 70% effaced at the very beginning, I'm like, sweet. <laughs> for someone who had a high leak, right? I mean, that's what your water breaking was, why it trickled for 24 hours mm-hmm. is that you didn't fully have a water breaking. Um, and, and eventually it did when it when it was supposed to, after you've been on Pitocin, right? Right. <laughs> and then there's your ability to fall asleep in the very beginning of that. Like 
oh, my water's breaking, but I'm going to sleep, right? <laughs> there's no anxiousness. There's no excitement in that, even though that's probably one of your coping mechanisms. Yeah, yeah. Since you've said it a couple of times. Uh, <laughs> we can talk um, about that another time. <laughs> right. It's another session, right? <laughs> um, but I think about how the number matters so much in hospital settings of where someone is and why it is very helpful in knowing what to do next. It's always, it doesn't have to be the only thing, especially if someone is in so much discomfort um, and, and, and it's having a really hard time with that. There are other ways to know where a woman or a birthing person is at in their labor. Uh, but paying attention to the actual birthing person and their behavior during labor is far more telling than what a cervical check can tell you, especially if some people do go from one to 10 within a couple of hours. Like there's so many variables in that and, and that I'm glad that they gave you the space that they did, you know, and that you guys were able to advocate not only for yourselves, but having someone there, especially having your doula there to help you just kind of like you said that everybody was having something to say and that you noticed that she was kind of just listening. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of like part of the work is assessing where everyone in the spaces and what everyone is talking about and making it all make sense right um there's so many other ways right i mean if someone is less talkative that's that's a sign of labor change in labor mm -hmm. right if someone is needing more support physically if someone is you know coming down and feeling like they they can't do what's being required of them and they start to verbalize that like that's a sign of change in labor like we can use all the things we know and 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 still put those numbers and see where they match up and if they don't you know then look into what else could be going on there right so yeah I think the last thing that I is really nice to hear is that when you shifted to a surgical birth, being able to still have things that, like you said, made it be an atmosphere that felt good for your, your daughter, um, playing your music, making sure it was y'all that she connected with first, um, being able to have a nurse that, that like, you know, saw the, the importance and being able to support you so that she could be close to you. Like, those are all should be all possibilities, but it allows people to know that ask for those things. Yeah. Um, see what happens. There are some, you know, care providers who are like, yes, let's make it happen. And then there are still some who are a little iffy, but that those are options, right? That it doesn't have to um, move from what felt peaceful or what felt right for you to something that's completely out of your control. So, yeah. yeah. Ariel. Do you want to share what was actually going on with your daughter? Yeah, I, I'm open to, to sharing. So, you know, when Nyla came out, we learned that her umbilical cord was had actually gone limp. Um, and so she wasn't getting the, the blood and, and nutrients that she normally would. And we ultimately could not do a delayed cord clamping. And what was really amazing about that, even though that's not an amazing thing, was I felt like when we shifted to the decision to have an elective surgical birth, it really was the best decision to make. And, um, you know, when we learned that, it was like, it was just the right time to do it and just the the right 
the right moment to do it. And that's not to say had we done it earlier, you know, but and I'm I'm so grateful that she came out, she was healthy. There was, you know, nothing, nothing wrong, but it just was so amazing to know that that decision was made at the right time for her and I. Um, and, you know, we wouldn't have known, you know, that it was going limp and she wasn't getting what she needed until she maybe would have ultimately been truly in distress and it become an emergency situation. When you talk about your body failing you um, previously in this talk here, you having that leak is what led you to the hospital eventually to give birth to your baby. And like you said, in a timely manner, when it mattered, um, is your body actually working how it is supposed to? Yeah. And even just how, how you think your body is supposed to work versus what like truly trusting your body is and feels like. And I feel like it's something that even goes into postpartum um, when you connect with your body in the healing process and and if you choose to nurse and needing to trust what's coming out <laughs> of your body and and in nursing your child and um, so much of what I associated my body's failure to be was because of what in my mind it was supposed to be doing. But to your point, it had already done so many things that it was supposed to do. Um, and I didn't feel like my body was failing me until I got into that hospital and those numbers. You know what I mean? I wait once in a minute, I'm supposed to get to 10 or, you know, it's just like you start to um, attach to some of those things and it it overtakes the accomplishments that already had taken place. Um, you know, my even though my body had a slow leak, my baby was was well protected in the fluid. You know, like I it was just so many things where my body was was doing, like you said, what it was supposed to do. And um, the foundation of what I was defining as failing was based on, you know, I feel like what the the hospital system makes you think. So walk us through postpartum. Um, yeah. How did it begin and how is it going now? Oh, yeah. Postpartum. Um, one thing I shared earlier is that I only researched the birth I wanted. And so as a result of that, I had no idea of what to expect, what to do following a C-section. I didn't, I mean, I knew nothing about it. Um, so, you know, everything from not being able to really get up, you know, or engage my abdominals the way that, you know, I would to do pretty mundane things um, to, you know, feeling like a, a stitch was going to rip if I laughed or, or, <laughs> or coughed, you know, it was those things. Um, even though I had a C-section, still having that vaginal bleeding was like confusing. And there was just so much around the, what probably was like common knowledge with the C-section that I just didn't know. Um, and so postpartum felt like this like, let me hurry up and educate myself on <laughs> what's happening. Um, little things like getting 
underwear that didn't hit my scar and like, you know, just things I didn't even consider or or think of. Um, but I I knew early on because um, I, I do deal with anxiety. And so um, I have a therapist that I'm tried and true and and go regularly to. And so I, I knew early on that I would be a risk for postpartum depression. And so I um, went back and forth with encapsulating my placenta. I ended up not. Um, but I just knew like I needed to keep an eye on it. And I I remember feeling just so, so sad <laughs> and inexplainably sad. And, um, you know, so I definitely expressed that to Stefan and, and to, and Stefan, you know, shared it with Monique because I think I was just like, oh, I'm a, I'll be okay. I'm, I'm, and he's like, mm, she not doing too, too high, you know, she, she needs some support. And so immediately, um, Monique encouraged me, like, call your therapist, like, you need to get a therapy appointment. Um, and that definitely helped to just get immediately on top of my therapy routine again. Um, I was very honest with my doctor um, around, you know, my postpartum. They, you know, they test you. And I was, I definitely tested for um, postpartum depression. And so, um you know, I, when I look back at that time, I think there were just so many things at play. I think there was the hormonal dip and that was impacting it. But I think I was really uh, grieving some things, grieving what I thought pregnancy would look like um, in the pandemic and what it did ultimately look like. And, um, you know, I just brought home this baby and I'm, back in the house, isolated, you know, because of the pandemic again. And so feeling like support and what I thought support would look like was a little different. Um, the What was really a bright spot for me in my postpartum experience is um, my mom and grandma stayed with me for the first two months. And I was a little iffy on that because I'm a pretty spatial person and I'm like, I'm going to come home. I'm going to want to be with my baby and that's it. And But, you know, I we needed that support. And I remember going back and forth with Stefan about like, I don't know, I, I think I'm just going to want my space. And he's like, it's going to be a lot going on, you know, and and we need to just play this by ear. And I remember the relief of walking in that door and my mom being there and just bawling in her arms and because you are born you, you are born as a woman into a mother but you still very much need mothered i feel like in that time um so everything from helping me get out of the bed and bringing the baby to me so that i could nurse to i you know doing the dishes doing the laundry like all of that for the first two months it, i mean just such a blessing um, to have that level of care for me and for Stefan so that our focus could truly be our baby. And having that level of care from someone who is here to care for you so you can care for the baby. So not that um, not that they were here just like, oh, well, I'll take the baby. You know, it was truly like caring for us so that we could have what we needed to just be all in for her. And that was 
that was transformative, I think, for, for my postpartum experience, because I, I don't want to imagine what it would have been with my PPD, um, you know, and just things probably starting to pile up on me on top of, um, you know, trying to just navigate this, this new human and um, person. But ultimately, um, you know, one thing that my therapist encouraged was just to find ways to connect with people to try to help with my my postpartum because I again I think in addition to the hormonal dip I think it was a lot of the isolation I was just catching up with me and um you know so I, I'm so grateful for the friends that would sit literally on the other side of the yard and <laughs> in a mask and you know to keep me and this baby safe. I had a friend who came and sat in the rain and just talked to me through the patio door, you know, it was just like those moments though, that were like revival for me with like, with regards to my postpartum, I can remember those moments just being emotional and mental shifts um, for me in the postpartum experience. And then um, constantly needing to, to trust my body. I did nurse and I do still nurse, um, nurse Nyla. And that has been just the consistent test of trusting my body. Um, so many times of thinking, is she getting enough? Every time she cries, is it because she's hungry? Did she not get anything? And, you know, hand expressing just to see is milk really coming out? You know, is, is there really something there? And just, it has been such a lesson of, again, just surrender and trusting uh, my body and, and going with the flow. Um, I I find that when my postpartum really kicks up and that anxiety really kicks up is when I get really rigid to what how I think things are supposed to be. So even with how she sleeps, if she's not sleeping a certain way or she's getting up a certain number of times, I just get so anxious because what did I do today different than what I did yesterday? And um, just finding those times to let go of that rigidity and just go with her flow um, and just surrender to her flow and just learn her flow with her. That's been when I feel like the biggest breakthroughs in, in my postpartum experience. Um, and then today, you know, it's, it's gone so fast. I, um, I just miss those, those newborn moments with her and her being just so tiny and just that precious time. Um, but I'm in in many ways grateful for the pause of the pandemic because I still am very much in the house with her and love every minute of it. Um, you know, I do every now and then get a little uh, antsy. Like I, I want to, you know, I want to go out and, you know, but I, I think... Once I just let go of how things were and really, I think, worked through the grief of how I wanted pregnancy and things to look like, it's just being present with her has been, I mean, the brightest spot of every day. Um, so, you know, I think I do still stay on top of my postpartum. So I do still go to therapy regularly. Um because I know it's still there and I, and I, because I still nurse, I, I'm still hyper aware 
of any potential dips that may come when I stop. Um, so I, I do still try to stay um, on top of it from that perspective. But um, in so many ways, you know, those times of holding her is in so many ways she's held me, um, you know, so it's just it has been just a blessing um, and truly a transformative thing for me in my life. Is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners, whether it be advice, any additional points from your birth or resources as well? Yeah, um, I would say so. I, I was thinking, like, what advice would I give anyone? I, I feel like <laughs> I'm always like, what unsolicited advice can I give everyone? Um, I think the the lessons that I really took away from the experience was like first not like not attaching myself to the way I get to the end result. And so my my ultimate goal was healthy mom, healthy baby on the other side of this. And I think not attaching to how that came about so so much um and really understanding the why behind some of my preferences. Um, because I hadn't fully understood why didn't I want an epidural. When I was presented with that, I had a complete meltdown <laughs> because I never addressed really emotionally what was behind me not wanting it. Same thing with the Pitocin. And so I think just knowing what's the real why behind some of these preferences and some of the things that you feel anti, um, you know, having. And, and not that it has to have a deep reason, but I think for me, had I understood the why a little bit more, I think I, I wouldn't have had such an emotional reaction when some of those decisions were, were placed um, in front of me. The BRAIN acronym is real. I think that, um, you know, while we didn't call it out, that was ultimately what we exercised at every point of the, of those decisions. You know, I feel like I had someone that paused and gave me time to understand, you know, what the alternatives were, what the risks were, what what happens if I don't do anything. And I had a, a team with my doctor and my doula and Stefan that supported if I do nothing, what what will happen? And um so just exercising that, having the right birth team, I think everybody should have a doula. I think the minute you think that you want to conceive, get a doula. <laughs> um, there's just so much, there was so much support um, that I feel like I needed not get off the internet. <laughs> like I needed to get some support from a, a person that, that actually knew what they were they were doing. So I think everyone... Um, and if you don't, at least in that birthing space, having having someone be your voice um, and, you know, just surrendering to the process, you know, and what will be will be and, and trusting it along the way, I think is the, the main thing that I have taken away and continue to take away every day from it. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks for listening to Birth Stories in Color. Thank to hear you. this show and other episodes, head to birthstoriesincolor.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Root, restoring our own through transformation. Root is a collective of concerned Black families, community members, advocates, 
and interdisciplinary professionals dedicated to decreasing Black maternal and infant mortality in Ohio. Root's mission is to comprehensively restore our collective well-being through collaboration, resource allocation, research, and re-empowerment in order to meet the needs of Black parents and families. If you and your family are planning, pregnant, or in your postpartum period, please reach out to Root at www.rootrj.org. Financial assistance is available. You can also connect with Root at 614-398-1766 or email them at general-info at rootrj.org.